The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 6. Threats of a Feather I got up the next morning at 8, showered, dressed, and walked over to a cafe near Post and Leavenworth called Postworth. I ordered eggs and bacon with hash browns and washed it all down with a pot or so of coffee. In between bites, I read the paper and argued with the waitress about borrowing your partner's toothbrush on sleepovers. She said it was perfectly okay, but I said it was a disgusting practice. And besides, Why did all women's toothbrushes look like they'd been used to scour Nelson's column at Trafalgar Square? After breakfast, I continued down post until I came to Powell, and then turned right and walked towards Market. This took me past Union Square, and into the heart of a six-block area that vied with Fisherman's Wharf for the highest concentration of tourists in the city. The main draw was the cable car turnaround where Powell dead-ended into Market. This was the start of the cable car line that ran back up Powell, over Knob Hill, and down into North Beach. Everything and everybody near the turnaround was set up to separate tourists from their money. First there was the cable car itself. Three bucks for a two-mile ride on a rickety exposed carriage that crept along at 10 miles an hour, was filled with cold, overweight tourists and their preteen progeny, and on occasion slipped the cable and went zinging down Knob Hill towards a violent encounter with a bus or a garbage truck. The last such encounter cost a tourist his leg and caused the manufacturer of a well-known prepackaged rice dish to remove their billboards from the back of the cars. Next, there were the glitzy camera and consumer electronics stores that lined the street near the turnaround. Here you could buy the latest miniature video camera for 120% of the price you'd pay back home, often without the knowledge that you were getting a factory refurbished unit, and always with the very minimum in customer service, and the prohibition, no refunds or exchanges, printed at the bottom of your receipt. Moving down the food chain were the street vendors. They specialized in knockoff sunglasses, silk ties sealed in plastic wrap like smoked salmon from the deli, handmade jewelry and leather goods, and a complete assortment of new age trinkets and fetishes, including magic crystals, soapstone carvings, cassette tapes of whale mating calls, and chips of red rock supposedly harvested from psychic vortices in Sedona, Arizona but more likely obtained by taking a hammer and chisel to Uncle Ed's flagstone patio. At bottom, and employing the most direct approach to raising cash, were the panhandlers. Among this group there was considerable variance in technique. Some merely sat on the sidewalk, heads bowed, with a cardboard sign stating their plight and a cup or hat nearby to collect change. Others stood and barked a pitch at passers-by. This might be a straightforward request for money, or could involve humor, such as, please contribute to the United Negro Pizza Fund. Often, the most successful panhandlers brought props with them to garner sympathy and interest. These included cats, dogs, and children that looked cute or needed to be fed. My personal favorite was a woman who held an infant swaddled in blankets close to her chest and looked up at you with mournful eyes as you approached. The last time I dug into my pocket to give her some change, I realized the baby she held was really a plastic doll, 
and rapped it sharply on the head with the quarter I'd retrieved. Sounds a little hollow in there, I said. This prompted a string of invectives, followed by a quick series of blows to my head as the woman swung the baby doll by the foot like a club. I waded through the sea of tourists and panhandlers near the cable car turnaround without incident and went east down market towards the ferry building. Only a little ways on, I paused to indulge in a superstitious ritual of mine by tapping the Samuels Jeweler street clock and then headed into the lobby of the flood building at 870 Market where I had my office. I rented a couple of rooms on the 12th floor near the back. The front room I subleased to an insurance agent, and he and the part-time secretary we shared occupied it. The back room I kept for myself. The insurance agent was named Ben Boniker, and he was without question the biggest horse's ass on the planet. The secretary was named Gretchen Sabatini, and we had once been engaged. I came through the door and dropped the two questionnaires I filled out the day before on the outgoing mail stack. Boniker was standing by the coffee machine, pouring sugar into his coffee cup at the rate a cement mixer pours concrete. He was about 50 years old, about 5 foot 8 inches tall, and had a belly like a hefty bag filled with jello. He had white hair, a white beard, and a ruddy complexion for too much drinking. His teeth were large and obviously capped, yet through nature or lack of skill on the dentist's part, his uppers protruded in a significant overbite. He was wearing one of the two business suits in his closet, a powder blue number from J.C. Penney's, with suspenders, a threadbare dress shirt, and a tie that looked like it had been used to wipe out a soiled Petri dish. Reardon, you little peckerhead, he said affably. How the hell are you? Swell, Ben, just swell. Remember how I promised to feed your face into the document shredder the next time you called me a peckerhead? Boniker blanched and stepped back involuntarily, causing the flow of sugar to shift from his coffee cup to the top of his stomach, and from there to the floor. Shit, he said, and thrust his cup and the sugar container down to brush himself off. Lighten up, buddy. I'm just trying to make with a friendly here. He gave me a smile that was about as genuine as the capped teeth it exposed. Say, I heard a joke I know you'll like. Every time you saw Boniker, he had at least one new joke usually involving a recent disaster, minorities, or a bodily function. I knew from experience there was no way to duck this one. What's the gift that keeps on giving? He asked with a broad grin. You got me. A fart cut in a revolving door. I rolled my eyes and walked past him to Gretchen's desk, which was a few feet from my office. She looked up at me with an amused expression and said, Good morning, Augie. You should count yourself lucky. I've already heard it three times. I generally liked people shortening my first name to Augie, about as well as I liked them calling me Peckerhead, and I had fought innumerable battles in grade school to make the point stick. But I didn't mind it when Gretchen did it, because, well, she was Gretchen. The product of a second-generation German mother and a first-generation Italian father, she never got the joke when I called her my Axis Powers girl during the time we were going out. Her eyes were a devastating cornflower blue, and seen without makeup, they looked touchingly like those of a young child. She had a lithe figure with an extremely narrow waist and beautiful shoulder-length auburn hair that women were forever asking her where she had cut, as if the same hairstyle would somehow equate to the same luxuriant locks. While her nose was small, she had inherited the shape of her father's heavy Italian snaz, and that and the freckles that dusted her chest 
were her least favorite features. I loved them both, along with the rest of her. We had been engaged about six months when I broke it off because I felt hemmed in and burdened by the need to support her financially. She took it in stride, and within two weeks was going out with a rich urologist she met while sailing on the bay with friends. I was intensely jealous and on the verge of asking her back when she came into my office one day with two skinned knees and a couple of skinned elbows. What in the world happened to you? I asked. Rugburn, she said with a mischievous smile. Hearing that, cut out my heart and cauterized the wound in a single step. I never thought of us together again. I said good morning to Gretchen and walked past her into my office. Nobody was beating down the door to feature pictures of it in Architectural Digest. It looked like the office of a vice principal in a poor school district. I knew because I'd bought everything at an auction when the school burned down. There was a large gray metal desk with a formica top and a touch of smoke damage. Two gray metal chairs with no arms and very little upholstery for clients. And a hard wooden swivel chair behind the desk on which I could play the William Tell Overture in squeaks. The only things that made the office mine were a couple of framed black and white pictures of my favorite bass players. Those and the half dozen or so paper cups of rancid coffee with spots of mold floating on top. I was too lazy to clean up. I plopped down in the swivel chair and began sorting through the mail and phone messages Gretchen had left on the desk blotter for me. There were two messages from Bishop, so I dragged the phone over and dialed his number. I could tell right away that he was cranky. Reardon! He almost shouted. What have you been up to in the last 24 hours? Oh, let's see. I've been to a drag bar, done a spot of breaking and entering, and watched a very interesting porno tape. All in all, it's been a spanking good time. Why? What's it to you? Whatever you've been doing, you've stirred up trouble. Trouble for me. Last night I got a threatening phone call. I was told to stop hounding Terry McCullough and to call off my private investigator. I set up a little straighter. Did you recognize the caller? No, it was a man and he was obviously trying to disguise his voice. However, I don't think he reckoned on my having caller ID and I recorded the phone number from which he called. Bishop read the number off to me and I explained to him about my own call and told him I thought the numbers were the same, but I would double check. I ended with, What I don't get is how Terry's friend, if that's who he is, knew how quickly I was involved. Have you told anyone you were hiring me? No one apart from my lawyer. I assume the call was triggered by an overzealous pursuit of the software on your part, perhaps in conversations with Terry herself. I never got that far. She hasn't been home. If neither of us has told her about my involvement, that only leaves Roland Teller at Mephisto Software. He wasn't any too happy yesterday to hear Terry McCullough had ripped him off. It's conceivable he got hold of her and gave her an earful. Bishop produced one of his wheezing furball laughs, which over the phone sounded like the cat was in an iron lung. That's certainly possible, given Mr. Teller's pugnacious reputation in the industry. However... It does beg the question of why Teller seems able to locate Terry McCullough more easily than you. I've already given you her address and phone number. Would you like me to prepare a map as well? Let me dish the sarcasm, Mr. Bishop. I'm a trained professional. I'll locate Terry all right, but in the meantime, I suggest you have your lawyer contact Mephisto and encourage them to put on hold any plans they have for your software. My sources tell me Mephisto is very close to releasing a variety of products based on the program. And I don't think we want that happening before we can prove ownership. Yes, that point had occurred to me. I'll take care of it today. 
I said goodbye after promising to get to the bottom of the phone calls, and then put in a couple of hours working on a report for another client. I was trying to decide whether to hide a whopping bar tab under fees paid for information, i.e. bribes, or mileage, parking, and tolls, when Gretchen sauntered into the office, closed the door, and leaned against it negligently. I noticed for the first time that she was wearing a black linen jacket with a pleated black skirt. But then, she always wore black. You have a visitor, Mr. Reardon, she said in a tone that sounded more like I had a social disease. Oh yeah? What's its name? Jody something or other. But I suspect most people know her by your title, Miss D. Cup of Northern California. That's right, I said. It slipped my mind. The pageant committee asked me to do a credential certification. Send her right in. Gretchen mumbled, little boys, pulled open the door and exited. A moment later, Jody something or other of Bikini and Monopoly fame stepped in. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Mm-hmm.